this is D.B. Sweeney from Too Dumb Mix, which is now playing on YouTube, and you are listening to the Atomic Podcast. Intellectual stimulation by way of mobile devices. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Atomic Podcast, and here is your host of the show, Ephraim Guzman. Intellectual stimulation by way of mobile devices. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Atomic Podcast, coming to you live from Twin Lakes, Wisconsin, where I blow up the news on a verbal scale. I am your host, Ephraim Guzman. My guest today, he's an actor, voiceover actor. He's been all around the world. Ladies and gentlemen, D.B. Sweeney. D.B., how are you, man? How are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. How are you doing today? Ah, man, coronavirus, central pandemic. This is, I think, the first of, of, of its kind dealing with indoor stuff but if you're essential you definitely have to go out outdoors and everything and shop um how are you how, speaking of that how are you dealing with the coronavirus yourself you know what it's it's a lot more time at home with the family and uh trying to maintain the social distancing guidelines and but it doesn't really feel that that different except nobody's working you know i mean grocery stores are opening you get gas it's not it doesn't really feel like a lockdown yeah true um how how do you feel about the gas prices being extremely cheap it's awesome. It makes you want to get a bigger car. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, DB, um, you're originally from New York, right? I am. Long Island. Long Island. Okay. I'm originally from Manhattan, New York. Um, What's the best part of New York that you love? I know you travel to the city itself, but what do you miss about New York? Well, it's bagels and pizza. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, I think, you know Chicago is, is uh, in, I think, in many ways a, a, a better version of New York. Yeah. And uh, Toronto, in many ways, is a better version of New York, except it's full of Canadians. <laughs> but, uh, uh, no, I love Canadians. But anyway, I mean, it's like Toronto's kind of a cleaner New York, and Chicago's kind of a friendlier New York. And I, I just like, not that New Yorkers are all unfriendly, that's kind of a cliche, but people in Chicago have a little bit more time. You know, it's not so crushingly expensive here. That, you know, like in New York, you know, like living in Manhattan like you did, it's like it's so expensive that you almost have to spend every waking moment making money or trying to find a way to make money. Yeah, true. It's true. Or especially like a lot of people do, like actors or whatnot, whatever you're working, you're always living with roommates and you pay like $600 for a square box room and, you know, sharing a right. fridge and whatnot. It's tough, you know? Yeah. You know, so um, how did you get involved in entertainment? Like, what led you to the entertainment field? Because everybody has different stories and different trajections of how they got to the entertainment field. What was your trajectory? How did you get there? Uh, well, I was. Uh, I wanted to play baseball, and uh, I went to college, play, got injured, and then uh, switched over to try and uh, yeah, get active for a short period of time while I tried to rehab my my knee injury, and then it didn't really get better. And I started getting jobs as an actor, and one thing led to another. I I, I didn't really expect it to turn into a you know a thirty plus year career. I thought it was really just something I would do for a few years, and then you know go to law school and become an asshole or something, you know, uh, you know, so or you know to get a real job. But I. I you know, it, it really, I didn't have a long-term plan of like, oh, I want to be an actor. I want to do this, that, then direct something. Or I didn't have any of that going on. I was basically, it doesn't sound like it's a lot of work in college, which was wrong because it is a lot of work memorizing <laughs> and learning all the skills you need to have. Um, but at the time, you know, to an 18 year old kid, I was like, uh, well, you know, there'll be a lot of pretty girls and I don't, you know, I don't have to do a lot of homework. <laughs> oh man. And, um, being involved in that field, did you feel inadequate at first? Or, like, was it your calling when you was like, oh, I can do this? Like, did you have, like, that perception of it? Well, I mean, 
you know, I wasn't really like shy or anything like that. But oh, you know, okay. getting in front of a group, a group of people is, is a challenge for everybody the first time you do it. But I, you know, I was, I was a bit of a class clown and I was a wise guy. So it wasn't a big stretch to go from that to stand up in front of people and try and entertain them. And uh, I did. I started out trying to be a stand-up comedian in the very beginning, and and that is incredibly difficult. That, to me, was one of the hardest things that I've ever tried to do. And, you know, you have to really, the guys who do that well, like, you know, Chappelle and uh, Bill Burr and all the other guys that, are, that, you know, the big name guys that are really, that have cracked that nut. I mean, that's really, that's one of the highest forms of performance in my view, because there's no margin for error. Like if you, you know, you got your, whatever you're doing, 12 minutes or 20 minutes or 40 minutes, if you lose them for, a, you know, 10 seconds, it's really hard to get them back. So, um, I, I really admire people who are who are masters at that. Oh. You never was involved in Second City or anything like that. No, no, I never. I just, you know, I'm living in Chicago now, but I just moved here six years ago, and uh, you know that I I didn't go that route. But uh, I started doing a lot of plays, you know, uh, what they call straight plays, you know, dramas and uh, comedies, and you know, as opposed to musicals, I wasn't really. I did some musicals, but I wasn't. I found out pretty early that I was not like a world class dancer or singer. <laughs> so my strengths were more in, you know, playing characters and, and uh, you know, telling stories. Yeah. Um, what was your first big break in um, mainstream Hollywood? Well, my first big break was actually on Broadway. I did a show called oh. The Community Court Marshal, and uh, I got the part. It was toward the end of the run of the show. It had been on Broadway for about seven months, and towards the end of a run of a show, everybody knows this thing's about to end, so I got to go find my next job. So people start jumping off like the sinking ship, like, you know, like rats. So they need people to fill in, you know, to complete the run of the show. So I got it like the last six or eight weeks of the Kane Mutiny Court Martial on Broadway. And I understudied several parts. I had one very meaningless part, which was the part that I took over a guy uh, from a guy. Mm-hmm. And then um, part of my deal was I had to understudy, you know, several other parts. And at the very last week of the show, the best part that I was understudying, that actor left to go do something else, Scott Burkholder always be grateful to him because he left and then I got to go on in his role and there was a, a famous agent in the audience who saw me and kind of signed me and it was you know the rest is history type thing oh that's awesome that's awesome and um what made you decide like you wanted to leave the city because a lot of people like even for me leaving New York was like a big freaking deal man and like you know like that's my home it always will be my home like what it's the career that led you to leave where you you was at like was it the career well, you know, I was doing a lot of theater, and then when I started doing movies, I lived in New York for five or six years after that. I never made any movies in New York, and I was increasingly spending time in Los Angeles, so I just decided to get a place in uh, Malibu, and mm-hmm. I lived there for a while, and then I moved to Santa Monica. And, uh, you know, California's okay. But New York's better than, you know, living in L.A. for my money, but it was just more convenient than just getting on a plane every time you had to have a meeting. Gotcha, gotcha. And, you know, you do also... Um, you do a lot of voiceover work too. Um, it's that more financially beneficial than acting because you can always do voiceover for a lot of different things or is it pretty much the same kind of same field? Well, it's a different skill and uh, I really enjoy voiceover. I I got it. I got into that early on sort of by accident. I was asked to come in and replace one line in a, in a commercial and I just sort of did it as a goof to see what it what it was like, what, what a recording studio looks like, and what happens. I ended up making like fifty grand in residuals from doing Jeez. this one line, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, that's a good business." So I started trying to figure out how I could work in that area more often, and it's been great for me because it definitely 
having those accounts, you know, if you get a good account, like I was the voice of Lincoln Cars for a while, it, it can take the pressure off having to find a job as an actor if you know you have the money coming in from voiceovers. But that business has gotten much more competitive over the last 10 years or so. And, uh, it, you know, it's not it's not as easy to get those big accounts anymore because everybody's doing them. I mean, you, you know, you hear like, you know, big stars, like when John Hamm was, I guess, the main guy on 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 Mad Men, yeah, he jumps over and he's doing Mercedes or whichever one he's doing. Whereas it used to be that a, like a big TV star would not really do, yeah, you, know, you just see they wouldn't bother because they're making so much money as being a TV star that why would they bother? But then the business shifted where the companies were willing to pay enormous amounts of money for recognizable voices, and uh, so that sort of took out the guys who were more like uh, uh, voiceover craftsmen type guys like me. Yeah, but you notice though, like a lot of voiceovers now, even for like uh, cinema, Pixar, cartoons, there's a lot of big names they use for voiceover actors. Like if you watch movies from back in the days, like Transformers from 1986, there wasn't really that much name actors besides Orson Welles and Leonard Nimoy. But now it's a lot of big stars are getting a lot of voiceover works with animation. Is that something you might be interested in down the line? Oh yeah, yeah. I did two, I did two movies for Disney, and and I some of the greatest experience I had in my whole life um, as an actor. Um, the, yeah, the, the um, studios like Pixar is exempt kind of from having to have celebrity voices because Pixar makes the best movies in Hollywood, not all, not just animated movies, but, you know, all movies. If you look at from Toy Story through The Incredibles, through, you know, those are the best scripts inside out. Um, those are just the best movies that Hollywood makes right now. So because they're so good, everybody wants to be in those movies, and Pixar has the luxury of sort of picking and choosing um, who, who actually matches the character the best. So, you know, there's a famous story where uh, I think Harrison Ford, they asked him to do The Incredibles, and he turned it down. And then he saw the movie, and he called Pixar and said, uh, I don't even know if this is true, but I heard the story, so yeah. I'll tell it anyway. And uh, uh, he said, wow, I really, my grandkids really want me to be in a Pixar movie. And they said, sorry, we only ask once. <laughs> so, so I don't know if that's true, but I hope it's true. And not that I have anything against Harrison Ford, but I just think it's cool. But anyway, Pixar movies <laughs> are a little bit immune. I mean, they have big names still, obviously, in their you know main characters, just because those some of the most some of our famous performers are actually very skilled, so they fit the roles that Pixar has. But other studios, like when they're doing like uh, um, what's that movie, uh, Invincible, uh, Incredible Me, or uh, no, not uh, Despicable, Despicable Me. me you know, yeah. The other other studios animated movies are not as good as Pixar's. So they know that they need like big names that they can advertise in their marketing to say, wow, we have Jonah Hill or we have Steve Carell or whatever. And those aren't necessarily the best voices for those characters, but those are the biggest names that they can afford that can help them promote their movie. Oh, I never really thought of it like that. Wow. Actually, that's a funny story. If that's true, oh my God, that's hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, back in the day, I mean, nobody knew what Mel Blanc looked like. Nobody even knew who Mel Blanc was. He was yeah. a genius, and he did all the voices for Warner Brothers. And, you know, and then right through, uh, the, you know, the, the right up until this century, really, and maybe 10 years ago, uh, voiceover people were pretty anonymous. Like, you know, Don LaFontaine was a friend of mine. He was the guy. He finally made a commercial about him for Geico, I think, where he, he was the guy who used to do all the movie trailers where he'd say, in the world. Oh, yes, and, yes, yes. Yeah, okay. so that was Don, and, and, and he his nickname in voiceover business was the buzzsaw because, you know, no matter what crap music or stupid commercial was going on, you put Don in there, and, and people would, his voice would just jump out of their TVs in the greatest way. So there were, there's several guys like that 
who uh, you know I really admired and I thought were really craftsmen in that area. But that's a lot of that's gone away now, where it's they're, they're chasing celebrities and the ad agencies and the movie studios would rather have celebrity names than people that are actually really good at it. Yeah. You know, um, how do you consider yourself? Do you consider yourself like a journeyman actor or is that a bad terminology to say? Or, you know, because, you know, like you've been in a lot of freaking movies just like anybody else. But um, your movies are pretty much like they're memorable movies too. like, you know, Fire in the Sky, The Cutting Edge. Like like people will always associate you with those roles. Um, Are you are you proud to be associated with like not 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 that you're typecast, but like you're more. I guess recognized for those roles. I guess, or depending what roles people are watching now. Like, what's your, what's your, what's, what's you know, what, what do you think about that? Like, you think if people see it, they're like, hey, that's a guy from Fire in the Sky, or he's from The Cutting Edge. Like, oh, those are the movies that you get associated more, more with. I'm glad that people still watch my movies. You know, yeah. Cutting Edge is uh, almost 30 years old, and it's a really good movie. And people yes. watch it over and over again, and I'm, I'm proud of that. Fire in the Sky, you mentioned, and Lonesome Dove. And, yeah. You know, I, I eat men out. I've, I've been very fortunate that I was in a bunch of movies that were really well made with a lot of good people in them and uh, that are durable. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I just wish I, I wish people were still writing movies that good these days, but they're just generally not. I mean, movies... I thought a few years ago, I thought they should turn the Oscars into like to be the Olympics like every four years because there really isn't enough good movies every year to celebrate. Like, you know, they expanded the best picture thing to 10 movies. And I thought, well, you know, you should have gone the other direction. You should have made it two movies. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if you look at the list of movies that like say came out, I don't know, 1994, 1995, you know, you got movies like Titanic and Heat, you know, mm-hmm. and you know you got these great movies that are going to last. And then nowadays, you know, we got, I don't know, crap. I'm not going to say any particular movie, but you look at the movies that are nominated for Best Picture now. Yeah. Like, what was the movie about the fish, the woman with the... Oh, the, the Shape of Water? Shape of Water. was a terrible movie. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I mean, there's it, it's just not... It doesn't compare to, you know, just to what we had years ago. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's a different era, different times now. Um, let me ask you this question. Would you be opposed to doing a comic book film? No, no, it'd be great. I mean, there's, uh, you know, if it had a good script, it's, it's, uh, anything can work if it has a good script. I, I feel like the Marvel movies have gotten a little bit generic now. Every movie feels the same. But, yeah. like, in the beginning, when Robert Downey Jr. did uh, Iron Man, I thought that was really new and, and cool. And, you know, I, I I thought it was a fresh spin. I enjoyed it. Mm. Are you a fan of the DC movies as well? Or Marvel is pretty much your thing? I mean, I don't... I, I, I don't really go to any of them religiously. I just, if I'm on an airplane or something, I, I, I guess I've probably seen about eight or nine of the Marvel movies. Okay. And, you know, they're pretty good. But the, the DC movies, you mean like X-Men? Oh, um, no, DC like Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman. Oh, uh, the Wonder Woman was good, yeah. I mean, Superman movies, I, I guess I've seen a lot of these movies, but none of them impressed me. I mean, you know, you put Ben Affleck into a Superman suit, Batman suit, whatever it was, it's like, I, I don't need to see that. <laughs> yeah true true um you're more associated with a lot of drama a lot of inner turmoil like how do you like even with fire in the sky which is based on a uh, true story um how did you get yourself immersed in that role and did you have to do a lot of research with alien abduction and whatnot no you know i mean i'll, I'll do research when it's when it's called for but this you know this was one guy's story about what happened travis walton yeah and i thought the script did a really good job of of describing what was going on and, and industrial light and magic did the effects so um i, I didn't really think I, it, it didn't really have to do with getting to know the actual guy i think when you have a good story 
and a good script, you can just do that. I mean, uh, when I did the cutting edge, we had this great script from Tony Gilroy, but I needed to know how to skate. So I had to start skating and, um, you know, and, and really become believable as a figure skater. So that was necessary for the movie. But as far as becoming an expert on UFOs or anything like that, it doesn't really, it, it doesn't, it's nothing that you can act on as an actor because, you know, you go to the set and it's like, I play a guy who's a lumberjack. He gets abducted. He doesn't know anything about aliens. And that's part of the point is that he's, you know, out of fish out of water. So there's times where, where research and preparation is really useful. And there's other times where it's irrelevant. Tell me about your latest project. I just watched it now. It's pretty hilarious. Two dumb mix. So tell me a little bit about that. How you got involved with yeah. that? Well, I did a movie called Memphis Bell in 1990 with Sean Austin. And Sean Austin, you know, from Lord of the Rings and yeah. Rudy. And he's just a great guy and a really terrific actor. People love watching him. And I always wanted to do another movie with him um, since 1990. And, and I'd run into him and we'd say, we should do something. And unfortunately, the way it works in Hollywood is, you know, sometimes you never get that second chance, not through anybody's avoiding it just just doesn't come around so i thought well i'm not i don't want to wait for it so i'm going to write something so i'm also looking at how more people are watching uh you know i have teenagers and they watch a lot of content on their phones so i just thought well you know what short films is where that's where movies started 100 years ago 100, 110 years ago where you know they were called one real comedies where they were less than 10 or 12 minutes long because that's how long a roll of film was and they didn't really have the confidence to splice film together and the, technologically it wasn't really you really couldn't play anything longer than that so because of that all these great movies from charlie chaplin and buster keaton and fatty arbuckle and all these other great comedians they had to compress the story into a space of less than 10 or 11 minutes and that created some really efficient and cool comic storytelling and i've always been a big fan of that so i wanted to try and do something that was not you know trying to be a silent movie or anything like that but just something that paid homage to to that type of work in those movies and in a more modern context and i put that together wanted to work with sean austin and that's how i came up with two dumb mix wow that's awesome man my only complaint it should have been a little bit longer but it was awesome <laughs> well that's good man if you you know always leave and want more so hopefully there's going to be you know nine or ten more episodes very soon and uh you know so there'll be uh uh you know a, a whole string of them maybe we'll maybe it'll turn into a whole business we'll make movies full-length movies who knows oh and how was it like working with sean again you guys had that same chemistry even though it's been like years apart like oh yeah he's awesome and we didn't have much in, in memphis bell we didn't have many scenes together we just we just hung out i just liked him and i just admired him and he's one of the most positive people in the world so I, it wasn't like we really had that much to do together in the original movie so this mm -hmm. was like a new world uh for us but he took he took to it right away he really enjoyed the character and the setup and we we had so much fun and we're looking forward to doing more yeah and you could tell like the chemistry between you guys is like kind of genuine it's almost like a felix and oscar type situation so you guys were oh, really that's good. great thank you yeah, no problem no problem um also you know you've you've been in pretty much everything man it's like you know your career you know a lot of people who are in the business they have like you know there's careers that are longevity and there's careers that are like kind of like short like a one-hit wonder you never really had a one-hit wonder type movies like all your movies have been very steadily going along um what do you attribute that to well i've always tried to uh you know be honest with the material and uh you know try and do exactly what's needed to make to tell the story and i've always in the beginning especially i was very aware of like wait well, just, just did a movie like this i better not do that movie again sometimes I, it was to my own 
detriment because I finished Eight Men Out. I played Sheila Show Jackson. And they asked me to do Field of Dreams uh, to play Sheila Show Jackson in that movie. And I thought, well, as a former baseball player, I do two straight movies playing a baseball player. They're all they're going to say is I know how to do is play baseball. So oh, okay. that was really stupid, actually. I should have done that movie because it's a great movie. Yeah. But, uh, but anyway, you know, I just tried to vary it up and I did as many different things as I could do playing people from different parts of the country and I played a Danish resistance fighter in another movie and I just tried to mix it up so that I could both get better as an actor and stretch myself but also to to make it hard for the audiences or critics or people like that to pin down exactly what you know what I was so that I'd, I'd have more you know of, uh, versatility how was your time in Strange Luck as a, as a series as Chance Harper? Like, um, doing a series and being the lead of a series, is that a lot of pressure on you? And did, would you like to go back to your series again? I love Strange Luck. Uh, that was a really, really good uh, character and a good setup. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a, it was a tough series to make because the guy who was running the show, the, the head writer, we, we didn't really see eye to eye. And I didn't think he had a really strong work ethic and you know, he just, he basically would write something down and then be like, okay, that's it. That's what we're doing. It's done. And I just think that, you know, you have to be a little more rigorous and, and, uh, you know, go through not necessarily multiple drafts when you're a TV schedule, but there's just, you just, you know, it's, it's forever. Like when you do a TV show, you do a movie, once it's done, it's going to be out there, you know, for as long as there's, you know, video or film or digital or whatever, you know, it's, it's yeah. there forever. So I, I take it very seriously. And, we had a lot of struggles on that thing, and then they finally replaced him, but they never really, you know, it sort of lost its momentum. So, uh, but the show was a, it was a pretty good success. Like, it was only on for one year, and uh, we were on before the X-Files, when the X-Files was getting huge. So a lot of people saw it, and uh, it's a weird thing. I don't know why that Fox has never released it on DVD. It seems like everything comes out on DVD, but that one never has. So, But there's some really good episodes, and I'm real proud of it. I'd love to do another show like that, or when I did Two and a Half Men, uh, a few years ago, uh, that was one of the most fun experiences I had in the business. I mean, sitcoms, is, if you get on a good sitcom like that one, it's, it's as good as it gets for an actor. you got a live audience, and you got great scripts and great writers and good people opposite you. So I would do that again in a minute. Mm. Um, is it more rewarding to be part of a series than to do a movie? Or, like, you know how you're saying you like to play different roles? Like, was, was you content on playing the same role for, like, a certain amount of episodes? Well, you know, when you do TV, if you if you if you get on a hit show and it goes on for years and years, you get rich. So yeah. I'd, I've never had that happen. You know, I mean, I would certainly deal with the problem. I mean, I, I know my friend Joe Mantegna just finished Thing uh, on Minds. I think they did 14 years, and you know, I'm sure you, at a certain point you get bored because you know a, a part of a series is recreating the same thing over and over again because people like it and they want to be reassured by it and uh, you know recreating it with minimal variations so that's i guess it's own craft it's like doing a long-running show in the theater but uh, i've never been in that situation I've, been, I've done five pilots and four of them were picked up which is a very high percentage but none of them got out of the first year so i'd love to have a hit show i'll keep doing it yeah um db what's been your biggest regret in life if you have any regrets I didn't buy Apple in 1981. <laughs> but uh, otherwise, I have no regrets, man. I've, I've had a great run. You know, I've uh, I've gotten to meet so many great people. Like, I, I've gotten to go around and, and meet people in the military, um, you know, to try and support their efforts and their families. And so I've been to the Middle East and met, you know, I, I, I've hung out with, you know, U.S. Marines and in, in uh, uh, downrange in, in uh, combat situations and 
it's just it's been a great honor and and i've you know met some great actors and athletes and stuff so i have no regrets awesome um what is your favorite and we talked about food a little bit what's your favorite new york dish to go to well you know i love john's pizza on bleaker street i mean that's one of the places oh my god yes oh shit yeah yeah i love john's is that i mean that's uh, I really feel like the one on Bleecker Street too is way better than the one. Uh, they used to have four. I think one of them closed. So now I think there's three. But like the one in Times Square to me is not nearly as good. Yeah. Maybe that's changed because I don't live there anymore. But uh, I love to go there. Um, there was a little place on Christopher Street called the Bagel Breakfast Place I used to go to, but that's gone. Um, How about um, think of... Cats Deli? Are you a fan of Cats Deli? Yeah, yeah. Cats Deli is good. Yeah, I mean, yeah it's good. I don't go there often just because of where it is. It's, I just tend not to be over that way, but. Uh, Il Molino is an Italian restaurant on uh, 3rd Street that I love to go to. When I, I was at NYU for three years, and I never had enough money to go in there. Yeah. So yeah. then when I made a little money, it became a thing where I love to go to Il Molino. Oh, <laughs> awesome, awesome. And um, my final question for you, DB, is what would the DB of today tell the DB of yesterday? Buy Apple stock. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, no, I, I really do think it's important for a lot of young actors actors and athletes you know you, you start making a lot of money in your 20s and 30s and uh you know you think you're going to be making that kind of money all through your life so it's you know it, it's important that those people get the right financial advice because you hear about so many people I, i'm doing fine i'm not trying to say i'm destitute or anything like that but it's it's you hear about all these act, act, athletes and actors i mean charlie sheen i think he made 400 million dollars in his run of two and a half men yeah. and all the movies he made and everything he's broke it's yeah. like yeah. How do you, you know, I mean, obviously he had some, you know, expensive habits, <laughs> yeah. you know, but nonetheless, if he had, you know, say if he saved away the first five million bucks he made 25 years ago, he'd, he'd be fine, you know, so I think that's one thing if, if anybody ever gets, uh, who's listening to this ever gets signed by the Yankees or gets their own show on CBS, save your money. <laughs> Oh man, um, DB, um, thank you for being on the podcast. Unplug um, your social media. Plug any upcoming events you have going on. Yeah, well, Two Dumb Mix is going to premiere on April Fool's Day and uh, on on YouTube. So if you Google Two Dumb Mix uh, on, you know, go to YouTube and just put Two Dumb Mix, it'll it should come right up. And uh, uh, hopefully, people enjoy it. And Sean and I will have a lot more of those coming. I also have a movie called. Uh, Manson Brothers Midnight Zombie Massacre, which will probably be out in October. And that's a really fun zombie comedy. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Um, DB, man, you've been a pleasure to talk to. I would love to have you on again and talk more. And um, much success to you, man. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And all the best to you as well. And I hope everybody out there was intellectually stimulated by way of mobile devices. Have a good one, folks.